Hey everybody, you're listening to the Legacy Church Podcast. Legacy Church is a multi-generational church that exists to worship God, become like Jesus, and bring hope to our community. Today, we're sharing a message from our current series. We believe that the Word of God is powerful and has real-life application to our lives today. We hope that this message encourages you. Get connected and learn more about us by visiting our website at lgcy.church. We're going to get in the Word here today. If you don't know me, my name's Sherry, and my husband and I are part of the leadership team in the Hamilton Legacy Church. And I am thrilled and honored to be able to share something that God's been speaking to me over the last while. And I want to welcome anyone that maybe hasn't been here in a while, or it's your first time here. We're really glad to have you be with us today. The title for my message today is Guilty But Not Condemned. I'm going to start by laying a little bit of framework for you from the Word of God, and then we're going to get into some explanation, some storytelling, and hopefully you can hear what the Spirit is saying to you guys today. So my first scripture I have for you is Galatians 6 and, sorry, chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. It says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. The second scripture, Romans 8, verse 1, and bless you. (laughs) Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the third pillar is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. And I'm going to give you a little context for this. I'm jumping in at the end of the story when Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit of the tree that God told them not to. Okay? So it says the woman, Eve, was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened. Interesting. And suddenly, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Another eye-opening of a different kind. Interesting. Have you ever taken a hold of something that has looked so good but turned out to be so bad. Yes, thank you for that. It's true, Pop-Tarts. Actually, my first little story was when I was a kid, my um, school did like a fundraising project and we bought these cookie dough tubs and my mom would store them in the freezer. Lauren remembers. And I loved cookie dough so much and like I would sneak out into the big freezer with a spoon and I would eat it and then I would go in the house (laughs) and pretend like nothing happened and it was so good in the moment but then my conscience got the better of me. I lived in a very, very strict household and so I was terrified of going to hell, you know, for any reason. And, uh, but I kept going back for more because the taste of it was so good and it didn't quite outweigh the guilt, you know. 
And, and it's just funny because it kind of rots in your stomach when you take something that you know you weren't supposed to, but you did it anyways, and it just sticks with you. I remember in uh, my early married years, my husband and I had a um, kind of like a falling out with someone, and we had to move. We were offered a place to live, and all of a sudden the door closed, and I was like, "Well, that's fine. They don't want us. We'll just we'll just go and we'll take a different place." And we didn't pray about it. We didn't do anything. We just jumped right into the next move, only to do all kinds of work, spend about $10,000, and about six months later, have to find a new place all over again. And we paid big. And it looked so good in the moment, it felt so right, because I didn't like the uncomfortable feeling I was feeling, and I just wanted to get out of there so quickly. But in the end, the cost was really high. Really high. And I think, you know, we've all kind of lived in those kinds of scenarios where you just... You know, the tree looked good. It was beautiful. It seemed right at the time. Felt comfortable, but it just wasn't the right thing. And I want to go through a story with you guys today that I've been pondering on for the last month. And it's Jacob from the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. And his story spans a really long section of the book of Genesis. And it goes from Genesis 25 to 47. And so that we don't have to sit here all day, I am going to summarize some parts for you. But I would really encourage you to read through Jacob's story. It's powerful. And there's so much detail in there. I will barely scratch the surface of what God has loaded in there. So that's Genesis 25 to 47. So We're going to start in Genesis 25, verse 21 to 26, and this is what it says. Isaac, who was Abraham's son, prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. I love that detail. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Grasping the heel is a very specific term. And it means to be the deceiver. The one that tries to reach for the thing that doesn't really belong to him and take it for himself. This is what Jacob was, and this is what he did while in his mother's womb. So from conception, he was fighting with his brother to see who would be in charge. And the ironic thing is that from his conception, God had already promised him that he would be the one in charge. So he was fighting for the very thing that God was willing to gift him. I had never seen the story of Jacob like that before. It was prophesied 
to his mother by God himself that the younger Jacob would rule over the brother Esau who was first. Now, how did they get to that idea? In that culture, it was the rite of passage that the firstborn would get the birthright. So they would get double portion of their father's things as well as the blessing handed down to them. So Jacob being the younger would not have normally gotten those rights. He wouldn't have gotten those blessings. He would have gotten a blessing, but not the big one. And it's interesting. I, I want to read to you guys from a summary from the Bible Project. If you have not heard of them, check them out. Because uh, the, their explanations of the Bible are so powerful. <clears throat> but Tim Mackey, a theologian, says, What's interesting is that right after God's word said, the greater one will become a servant to the little one, he was saying, hey, I've destined that the younger one will become the authority over the family. But when the second born is born, he comes out literally embodying a lack of trust in that promise. He comes out grabbing his brother to try and accomplish the thing that God said he was going to do for him. And there is no better way to describe the plot conflict of Jacob's story. His name embodies that the whole story is about him trying to grab and seize and scheme his own way to get the blessing that God was from before birth, trying to give, to, give him as a gift all along. And this is the drama of Jacob's story. And I would propose to you that this is the drama of the human story altogether. So I'm going to jump into a summarization of the next story that hits with Jacob. So Esau, this red hairy man, <laughs> is a hunter. And he goes out and he hunts food and he, he's like the big tough man. And his father loves him. He's like his father's favorite. While Jacob is his mother's favorite, and he likes to cook and be around the tents, and he's probably a bit of a philosopher, I would probably gather. And one day, Esau goes out, and he's been hunting all day long, but he's so hungry. And his brother sees an opportunity. Knowing his brother well, Jacob cooks a mean lentil stew. <laughs> and he says to his brother, hey, Buddy, I've got this stew all hot and ready for you. How about we do a trade? I'll give you this stew, and you give me your birthright. Esau's like, deal, awesome, and he eats the stew. Now, that's a whole other message altogether. But what you're seeing here, and the writers of Genesis purposefully did this, is that Jacob was meant to look like the snake in the garden, tempting his brother to give up his birthright, his blessing with some food. It's a little Eden story tucked in the middle of Jacob's life. So he's playing the part of the snake. He's been a snake from the beginning, and he's still a snake in his teens or his early 20s. And what happens is he gets the birthright. He now owns rights to the family name, the title to the family name, and a double portion of his father's inheritance. It's his. By illicit means, but it's still his. Okay? 
Now, what about the blessing? Let's see what happens next. In Genesis 27, his father's about to die. He's blind, and his father full well knows this prophecy that Jacob is supposed to have the blessing. He's supposed to rule over the older brother. But in his, on his deathbed, he says to Esau, why don't you go out and hunt something and make me one of those meals you really, really like, or I really, really like, and I'm going to give you the blessing. So Rebecca, Jacob's mother, hears this story, <laughs> and he, and she tells um, Jacob, I'm going to give you all the stuff. I've got all the stuff for your father's favorite meal. We're going to prep it real quick. And you're going to go in to your father and you're going to get the blessing before your brother. And so they hatch this whole scheme. He puts like animal fur all over his body to like cover himself up so that his dad doesn't really know who it is. And his dad is like not really tricked at first. He's like, your voice doesn't sound like Esau's. And he's like, it's me, it's me, <laughs> it's me. And he's like, come closer. And he feels the fur on his arms because he's blind, he can't see him. And he smells the smell of animals and the wind because of the fur. And he's like, okay, it's you. And he gives him the blessing. Exit scene and enter Esau. Esau comes in, he's like, father, I made you this stew. Here it is, can I have my blessing? And his father's like, what are you talking about? The blessing's gone. I gave it away. You can't have it. So he's now lost his birthright and his blessing. And he is murderous in his heart. And so Jacob now has to run for his life. And this is the part that just slays me. Jacob had the birthright, but I think in his heart, he needed the blessing to validate that he had the birthright. It didn't really feel like it was quite his because he got it unjustly. And so he added more evil on top of it. And now he's running for his life and he's about to go through these crazy consequences for his deceitfulness. Because as we read at the beginning, whatever you plant you will harvest. You cannot escape it. So he's running for his life, and he lays down in a field, and he has a vision from God of all these angels coming and going up a stairway, coming and going up a stairway, and he says, surely God must be in this place. And this is what God says to him. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. So God is staying good on his promise, even though he is guilty, guilty, guilty. He did it all wrong. He didn't follow God's way. He didn't wait for God's timing. He didn't do any of it. And God is still honoring his promises. So what I'm taking from that is that with God, Consequences do not equal condemnation. So then Jacob has to go and eat the fruit of his choices. And he works for his uncle Laban for over 14 years, and he is cheated from and stolen from 
over and over and over again. And he has to run from that place as well. And this man, he just, it doesn't seem to get through to him. And he still doesn't feel settled in his soul about this fraudulent birthright and this fraudulent blessing. And I don't know if you guys have ever felt that way, but I certainly have. I've felt like a fraud before many, many times. I don't really deserve this. I've gone too far. I shouldn't get this. God's finished with me. And even after suffering all of these things, it's like he gets let out of jail and God's like, go back home. Your time's up. You've, did your, you've done your time in prison. I want you to go back and I want you to face your family. And he is terrified to go back. Terrified. Is his brother going to murder him now? What's going to happen? And he cries out to God for help and asks God for, to be with him and here comes the famous story of Jacob wrestling with God. The man named the deceiver wrestles with God all night long. And the story is very complex, and you could probably sit on it for a couple months itself. <laughs> but it comes out saying this. After they had fought all night long, the man, being God, says, what is your name? The deceiver, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be deceiver, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. Now Jacob went into that fight begging for a blessing. All the things he hadn't gotten or he had gotten, weren't enough. They still hadn't satisfied him. Decades in, he still needed a true blessing. And the blessing that he got, this name change, didn't really feel like much of a blessing to me. He now went around being called struggles with God. <laughs> Can you imagine? He's limping, first of all, because like God had to take out his hip. He's limping. And he's like, hey, my name struggles with God. <laughs> Hey, guys, yeah, my name struggles with God. He went around like that for the rest of his life being called struggles with God. Can you imagine people talking about him? They knew his struggles with God. There was no hiding from it. It was, but that was called his blessing. His name change was called his blessing. That's what he got. And this moment is a milestone marker for Jacob in his journey. He's forever marked by his struggles, but he is going to be reconciled to his brother. And there is this beautiful reconciliation that happens between the two of them. But unfortunately, the patterns of deception and stealing and pain and drama carry through to all of his sons. And so you may have heard the story of Joseph but there's this crazy, the crazy thing about Joseph is he's the first one in the family line that doesn't grab or take for himself what God has promised. Joseph has a dream. And he shares his dream. He's young and immature and he's prideful. However, 
he doesn't take it for himself. And he walks this crazy road where he is the favorite son. And then he is kidnapped by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, rises to the top again. It's like up, down, up, down, up, down. He's in uh, Potiphar's house. He's running the place. And then he gets accused of rape. And he gets thrown into prison where he's forgotten about again. And then he's raised up again to rule. And he brings the promise that God originally made that all nations would be blessed through his people. And Egypt experienced that blessing through Joseph. So there was this one son that was willing to do things God's way. Even though his father didn't, even though his brothers didn't, and his grandfather and his great-grandfather, they all took things that they shouldn't have and took the blessing for themselves. And there's this really interesting moment, and I had never noticed this before. But in Genesis 47, verse 9, what happens is Joseph brings his father Jacob to Egypt and all of his brothers and all of their family to save them from a famine. And Joseph presents his father to Pharaoh. It's like bringing your dad to meet the boss. And Pharaoh asks this interesting question. He says, how old are you? I thought that was a strange question. But this is what Jacob says. The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. And they do not equal <clears throat> the years of pilgrimage of my fathers. And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out of his presence. And that word pilgrimage really hit me. We are all on a pilgrimage. And I know many of you in this room have felt like your years have been few but difficult. And having walked the road and having made mistakes and having felt like you were a fraud. You come in front of the Pharaoh and you say, my years have been few and difficult, but I'm on a pilgrimage. And then he does something beautiful. He blesses Pharaoh. This is the first step for him of living in the promise. God promised him that he would be a blessing to the nations. And at 130 years old, he blessed Pharaoh. And after all of this crazy dysfunction and sin and failure and pain, this family is listed in the Heroes of Faith in Hebrews 11. And I want you guys to read very carefully as I read it out loud. It's going to be on the screen, and I want you to see what you notice as I read. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
And by faith, even Sarah, who is past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Okay, it's a lot of scripture to read out loud, but did you notice that it said that Sarah believed God? She did not believe God. She did not believe God. She and her husband concocted a plan to rape their Egyptian slave so that they could have a baby. And in the end, yes, they did have a child, and yes, they did believe God, but God happened to rewrite that story a little bit, which I thought was very interesting. Also interesting that Isaac did not actually bless Esau and Jacob the way that God said he would. He should. But in the end, he did. And as far as Jacob's story goes, I mean, this is what he's remembered for. When he was dying, he blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. These, story, these stories in Hebrews 8, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 11 were written to people who were ready to give up the faith. They were read and written to people who needed to understand that it didn't matter how many times they messed it up, that their God would be with him, them, just as he was with all the people that came before. And God loves to rewrite the stories of people who continue trusting him and stay the path. He does not remember the faults, but only the end results of our faith. And all of this story leads to that point. And what happened in the closing scene of J Jacob's life is that he called Joseph, and there's a whole historical story that goes behind that, but he called Joseph and asked him for, to adopt his two sons, to be part of his family. And then what he did was he blessed the younger one first and blessed the older one second. And Joseph was actually angry about this. And he actually tried to move his father's hands onto the right order. And, said, and Jacob said, no, I won't do that. This is God's way. And this is the moment that Jacob's remembered for. Not for wrestling with God all night and beating him. <laughs> That's not a moment, the great moment of faith in Jacob's life. It is that he surrendered 
to God's way. And the big picture of that is that he was actually prophesying the coming of Jesus because Jesus is what we call the second Adam. The first Adam was supposed to rule, but he failed. And the second Adam rules over top of the first, and he saved us from our sins. And that moment was a prophetic moment of Jacob looking forward. He didn't have everything that he saw in the moment, but he looked forward to the moment when the great snake crusher, Jesus, would come and finally deal the final blow to the devil. And that's what he was doing in that moment. And that's why he was remembered. It didn't matter his 140 years of mess ups and up and down and failing and drama and complete dysfunction. That moment he submitted. And he was remembered. Heroes of faith are those with loyal, loving trust in God. Complete failures that just keep getting back up and walking the road. And we get it confused because we don't know that there's a difference between consequences and condemnation. And I am here today <clears throat> to share a specific message with you from God. And that is that God doesn't curse people. So in Genesis, I want to take you back because I had this mentality myself that I was living under the curse of the garden for myself. That there were certain things that I was limited to because of the curse in the garden. And yes, there are some consequences <clears throat> from the garden that remain. Death is one of them. We will all physically die. But God never cursed a human being. I'm going to read it for you. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the livestock. And then he goes on to tell him all of the things. You, more than any animal of the field, on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. But to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall deliver children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There's no curse word in there. Did you notice that? To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now to curse in the Hebrew language means to bind, hem in with obstacles, render powerless, and resist. So the serpent was cursed, he was hemmed in, by the seed of the woman, okay? He would have a limit to what he would be able to do. He was bound. He did not have complete control. The ground was cursed. It was hemmed in by the choices of man. But the man and the woman themselves were never cursed by God's mouth. What God was doing was he was proclaiming natural consequences for them. He was saying that when you break trust with me, 
Now mistrust has entered all of your relationships. And drama and dysfunction and pain will ensue in everything you have. And then you watch this be played out through the story of Adam and his children and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's just pain over and over and over again. And it was a natural consequence of breaking trust with God. Now they were forewarned that eating the fruit would bring them death. And that did happen. But even through all the consequences of their actions, there was the promise that Jesus would come and defeat the power of the devil forever. So this is Jacob's origin story. We all go back to Genesis. So if that's still true for Jacob, then that means that it is true for us. And how much more for us because we have Jesus. The truth is, is that anyone without Jesus stands condemned already because of the sin back in the day. But the offer is open wide to exit condemnation. So we live in a world where it is possible to suffer consequences for our actions and yet not be condemned. Which is powerful because I have lived almost my entire life believing that I have pushed God too far and he's just done with me and I'm just not going to quite notice that he's left me. Afraid that I've just gone too far. God must be done with me now because I did it again. I missed it again. I should have known that that was wrong and yet I ate it. He's got to be done with me. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the mind-blowing thing, is that even through the consequences, God is with us. He doesn't leave us. He rewrites our story. And even in death, there is no sting because the power of death to forever separate us from God has been lifted. And the moment that that happened was when Jesus was on the cross, dying. And he said this line. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that word forsake means to abandon, to leave behind, or to desert. And I am here to tell you today that God did not forsake Jesus. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus was quoting the Old Testament when he said that. And it's found in Psalm 22. And I am going to read the entire thing for you because this is the power of the gospel right here. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David in Psalm 22 verse 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and they were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, 
they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey, opening their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Listen to this. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. For you comes, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Powerful. In that moment on the cross, Jesus was saying those words on so many levels. Any Jew within earshot would have immediately been drawn to Psalm 22 when they heard those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So number one, he was saying how he felt. He felt forsaken. He felt abandoned, but God had not ended their relationship. He was suffering consequences of the entire world of sin, but God had not forsaken him. So not only was he speaking out of his mouth, God, I need you. I feel forsaken, but he was prophesying his own resurrection. He was prophesying that God had not turned his back on him. He was speaking the word of the Lord in the toughest moment of his life. He was reminding himself of the truth, that no matter how he felt in that moment, the truth was that God did not despise or scorn him. He had not forgotten his suffering and he was answering his cry for help. And this is the difficult thing with God is that all of those things can be true at the same time. 
it can feel like you're forsaken. It can be terrible to go through the consequences, but you will not remain down if you trust in the Lord. You will not. He is faithful. And, and history will tell the story that our God is faithful. And Jesus was the perfect one, but he has declared us righteous. And I have to tell you something. When we feel condemned, that word condemned, it literally just means the opposite of righteous. And in the word of God, when, when we are righteous in Christ, it doesn't mean that we are perfect. It means that he has declared that we are righteous. And it is so. No matter how long the journey takes to get to that submission, and as long as you do not give up the faith, if you keep your trust in him, you are righteous because of him and nothing that you have done for yourself. And that is the gospel in a nutshell, is that he is for you. He does not forsake you or abandon you. And thank you, yes, amen. We get to cry out to God. This is the practical part. We get to cry out honestly to God in the middle of the consequences. We miss it. I miss it all the time. We don't have to fake it, pretend like we're not going through the consequences. But he said, I'll go with you in the middle of the consequences. Go to God with the fears, with the anger, with the questions and the confessions. Go to him. Say it out loud. God, I feel like you've forsaken me. I feel like I'm not worth saving right now. I feel like this should just be shut down and I should be out of here. There's no hope for me. You take it to God. And then remind yourself and those around you of the truth in the middle of it. Consequences do not equal condemnation for those who keep the faith. And we all need this reminder in the midnight hour when it feels like there is no hope left. And we need to acknowledge the fact that God is with us. That's the beginnings of faith, is to first acknowledge that he exists and that he responds and rewards those that come after him. And what I would love to do here today is to take a moment to acknowledge that the Lord God of heaven is with us. To decide to put our trust in him when we might feel forsaken, no matter what it feel, no matter what the circumstances, that he is here, not just in this building, but in you, in you, the deposit of the Holy Spirit that he gave you, he doesn't pull it away. And so I'd love if whoever's willing could close their eyes And if this has really hit you today and you need some time for somebody to pray for you, I welcome you to come down to the altar or come and see me after service. But I want to declare over this body right now that you are forgiven. You are righteous because of Jesus. 
not because you saw all the things and you avoided all the evil, because you've kept it together. You're righteous because of Jesus. And Lord, I pray right now that you would show your church where you are. We ask that you would open our eyes with wonder and close those eyes of mistrust that were opened by eating the sin, eating the fruit that you said would kill us, and it did. Lord, I pray that you would put your healing ointment over the eyes of every person in this church. Lord, we surrender everything to you. And we need to see where you are, Jesus. Jesus, I, put, I choose to put my trust in you. And I stand up, God, in the righteousness that you have declared for me. And I surrender the lies that you're done with me, that you're done with us, that you've forsaken us, Thank you for the truth that guilty does not mean condemned. Lord, I pray that you would give a trade to each person in this place for any lie that they have believed, God, any place that they have felt that you have forsaken them, that you would meet them there in that place. And you'd speak your truth to them, Lord. God, I'm okay with being known as struggles with God because I will not give up. I will not leave the faith, Lord. I choose to keep my loyal, loving trust in you because you are so good. I thank you, Jesus. We honor you in this place. Amen. Thanks for listening. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast and connect with us on our website at lgcy.church.